0: Well, hey there. My name is Pastor Tim, and you have found my podcast. I currently serve as the pastor of First United Methodist Church of Fort Pierce, Florida, and I'm so grateful to be able to connect with you in this way. This podcast is a collection of my sermons and teachings that I hope you will use to deepen and strengthen your connection with Jesus Christ so that you might go and transform the world around you. So kick back, relax, and enjoy this week's episode. So on February 17th, 1739, the world changed forever. You see, a young evangelist named George Whitfield had just returned from the British colonies, and he found out shortly after his return to his hometown of London that he had been banned from mounting any pulpit within the Church of England. You see, England at the time was was dominated by the official state church, the Church of England. known as the Anglican Church, and because of George's rather radical stance towards evangelism, he was no longer welcome to preach in their pulpits. And so George, a bit disgraced and disillusioned, made his way to the neighboring city of Bristol. Now, Bristol was a blossoming port city that it was experiencing exponential growth as trade with the new world flourished. It was originally a coal mining town known for being a bit rough around the edges, which was a reputation that would continue to flourish as the population did. Bristol soon became known as the epicenter for poverty, alcoholism, and all other sorts of debauchery throughout the United Kingdom. And so George, being disgraced himself, found a home here in Bristol. And not only did he find a home, but George found a purpose. You see, though he was formally bound from taking up a pulpit within the church, he soon realized that the people that needed to hear the message of Jesus Christ's salvation the most were not people that he would ever run across preaching from a pulpit inside of a church church anyway. And so, on February 17th, 1739, he preached in an open field to about 200 coal miners. Within 3 weeks, that crowd had grown to over 10,000. 10,000. That's astronomical exponential growth. Not to mention it was unprecedented, both in growth and in practice. You see, it was not kosher for preachers to bring the preaching of God's precious and holy world out into the world this way. There was a very proper way of doing the work of God. It was to be done inside of a church with the appropriate amount of pomp and circumstance. The proper attire was to be worn. The proper hymns were to be sung the proper way. Preaching in a field, worshiping in a field with coal miners wearing their coal mining gear was not anything that anyone in their right mind would dream of being appropriate. And yet, this illegitimate preacher was doing it. And the people were coming in droves, They were responding, and it was only a matter of time before George realized that he needed some help. And so he sent a letter after his friend and mentor, a fellow Anglican priest back in London who himself had a penchant for trouble. And so on March 31st, John Wesley arrived in Bristol Quite torn still between the tradition of the church that he had sworn to serve and uphold and the prospect of what the Holy Spirit might be up to in his friend, George. But after reading and studying Jesus's famous sermon on the Mount and coming to the realization like, oh, wow, he was just out in the field standing on a rock. John made a difficult decision a decision that would change Bristol and would eventually change the shape of Christianity forever. John wrote in his journal on April 2nd, 1739, these words. He said, at four in the afternoon, I submitted to be more vile. And I proclaimed in the highways the glad tidings of salvation, speaking from a little eminence in a ground adjoining to the city, to about 3,000 people. The scripture on which I spoke was this. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. So what John did was what John always did, and he he organized the people into his preferred method of discipleship, societies, classes, and bands, and the Methodist revival began. The world has never been the same because of this work that was done in the field outside of Bristol. From the beginning, this was a movement largely for and among the poor. Those whom gentlemen and ladies looked on as simply part of the machinery of the industrial system that was blossoming in Europe. The Wesleys preached, the Holy Spirit cooperated, and the crowds responded. And, the, and Methodism, as a mass movement, was born. And so we sit here today because of it. And don't you think it's kind of wild that we're sitting in this church which is adorned with stained glass and elegance because some dude nearly 300 years ago got kicked out and banned from preaching in a church that was adorned with stained glass and elegance? It's kind of ironic, isn't it? And so what George did was he mounted up in a field, preached to the poor, and recruited his suspicious friend to come and try it out. And at least one historic moment of peer pressure worked out for the world. (laughs) But we all know that there's something much deeper going on here than just peer pressure. The Spirit of God was afoot during an act of worship. And though it was quite unorthodox in practice, the result was the unfathomable movement of God amongst God's people. And the world learned a lesson from this. That worshiping God in spirit and in truth, as Jesus instructs us in John's gospel, is not dependent on the four walls of a church. Worshiping God in spirit and in truth is only dependent on a heart that is oriented towards service and occasionally a willingness to submit ourselves to being more vile. You see, George and John weren't the first folks to preach and teach in unorthodox ways. John was convinced that Jesus himself was quite satisfied with this reality. You know, Jesus preached from mounts in fields, took up boats in lakes in order to amplify his voice. Jesus was not to be contained, and so. Why should John himself? But you know, sometimes using Jesus as the example of how we are to do things isn't the best. And that's not, just be, that's not because like, what Jesus did wasn't the best thing for us to do. It's just that we have it in our minds that Jesus is Jesus and Jesus is allowed to do whatever Jesus wants to do because he's Jesus. And so sometimes we need to be a little bit more convinced by just normal people. Doing these things. And so I think it's important for us to look at the ways that Jesus' followers lived and acted sometimes, because they're a bit closer to who we actually are than Jesus is. And so in John's Gospel, we get a really wonderful look at a very unorthodox worship experience. Now, Jesus is in the town of Bethany, which uh, he is, is the place where he had raised a man named Lazarus from the grave. You see, Lazarus' sisters, Mary and Martha, had, had called on Jesus when their brother had fallen ill. But Jesus kind of dilly-dallied, and he didn't quite make it there in time. And so Lazarus died. But Jesus was fine with that because he just raised him from the dead because he's Jesus. That's what he does, Right? And all of the religious leaders heard about this thing that Jesus... Who is this man that raises people from the dead? Certainly, this is something that we need to deal with. And so the religious leaders began to plot, and not just plot a way to get Jesus out of their town, but finally decided that Jesus needed to be dealt with in a permanent way. And so they began to, to, to plot and scheme how they were going to kill Jesus. And then right after that, we get this curious story from John chapter 12. This is John 12, 1 through 8. It says, Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, the home of Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. There they gave a dinner for him. So Martha served, typical, typical, and Lazarus was one of those who was at the table with him. Mary took a pound of costly perfume made of pure nard, anointed Jesus' feet, and wiped them with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume, but Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, you know, the one who was about to betray him, said, why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and the money given to the poor? Great question. He said this not because he cared about the poor, though, but because he was a thief. And he he kept the common purse and used to steal what was put into it. And so Jesus said, leave her alone. She bought it so that she might keep it for the day of my burial. You always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. And so there's a lot going on here in this short passage, but what I really want us to focus on today is the dichotomy that's created here between Mary and Judas. You see, Judas, you might already know about, and if you didn't already know about it, there was a spoiler alert right there in the text. John's not one for for, uh, climax, apparently. Judas is the disciple who is going to betray Jesus. Remember that I said right before this interaction, the religious leaders were formulating a plot to kill Jesus. Judas is going to be an instrumental part of that puzzle and he will accept a payment of 30 pieces of silver to turn Jesus over to the authorities less than a week from this interaction. And John wants you to know this because it helps to prove his point. Now, just keep all of that in your mind. You see, Jesus and the disciples are at Mary and Martha's house, presumably because they're throwing him like a thank you party for raising their brother from the dead. And so they're having dinner. They're gathered around a a table as a community. And in that setting, Mary kneels down and in a very strange act offers a very expensive gift. To Jesus, a very rare and expensive perfume. And then continues to use it to wash Jesus' feet, using her hair as the towel to wipe the ointment. It's very odd. And it's really kind of gross, right? And I'm pretty sure that it's not just odd and kind of gross. In our modern context, I think that 2000 years ago, it was odd and pretty gross as well for anyone who would look at it from the outside. But when we look at this act from the inside, especially knowing two things that will soon occur, I believe that we will see that this is really a beautiful act of worship. You see, in less than one week, Jesus will enter into Jerusalem and be anointed as the king of the Jews. And then a week later would be killed, laid in a tomb where his body would be anointed for burial. And so Mary, whether she realizes it or not, is pointing to these two realities as she serves and worships Jesus. And and in doing so, she engages in an act of worship That recognizes the power that Jesus has and the love that he has shown for her and her family. And it's that same power and love that we recognize in our worship today. We acknowledge the power of Jesus to bring new life to human beings. We recognize the love that Jesus has for the world that was shown to us through the cross and how that love has been made evident in our lives through our own living testimonies. And so it's in this ordinary place, around a dinner table, that Mary lays it all out on the line and worships the living God, unashamed of how odd and gross that it might seem. And it doesn't go without being chastised, Judas, the one who would betray Jesus, the one who was the group treasurer, throws up his objection. He's like, what are you doing? We could have, have sold that. You're wasting it. We could have served the poor. And honestly, like, I agree. I'm like, come on. Yeah, this, I mean, he's not wrong, right? It's a noble sentiment. But we all know that that wasn't Judas's real motive. We don't know at what point in in time in Judas' life and Jesus' ministry that that Judas turned against Jesus. I personally like to believe that it wasn't until very close to the end, maybe right around this time. But regardless, at some point, Judas' heart was turned against Jesus and towards himself. And Jesus for sure knew the moment that it happened because Jesus read people's hearts. But knowing that, and knowing that this is the the kind of couple of weeks leading up to Easter where we typically tend to go down the demonized Judas road, I think we need to pause and remember a couple of other facts. That even after... Judas' heart was turned against Jesus. Jesus saw him as beloved. In fact, beloved enough that on the night before the cross, Jesus sat down at a meal and washed Judas' feet, just as Mary is doing right now. But that's a, a little bit of a side note. You know, the real thing that we need to look at here is what's going on inside of Judas. There's a self-centered disdain towards the way that Mary is treating Jesus, perhaps towards what could be a lucrative profit margin made on some perfume, which Judas could maybe skim some from the top. And when we contrast that, that selfishness, with what is happening inside of Mary, I think we get to really see what John, the gospel writer, is really trying to teach us. Because Mary is showing this deep, selfless desire to show love and affection towards the Lord. One attitude, Judas's attitude, though on the surface is valiant, it followed would eventually lead to the destruction of Jesus' flock. While the other, Mary's attitude, characterizes the life of love that Jesus' people are called to model. And this is a lesson that continues on into our own time. There's this same type of tension of attitudes that made preaching in a field of coal miners and port workers in Bristol, England, such a scandalous thing to do. But here's the fact of the matter. See, the early church, those who were left to do the work of Jesus after his death, they had no choice but to worship in unconventional places, around dinner tables and in courtyards. In fields. They didn't have any buildings. But the result was a movement that took the known world by storm. And the result of George Whitefield and John Wesley's vile field preaching was the Methodist revival, which we still experience the legacy of today. And so we are left with some questions that we need to ask. And the first is this. You know, when I take an honest look in the mirror, whose reflection do I see most? Mary or Judas? Because, oh boy, are we quick to hit Judas with a stick. But I think that we all know that a lot more of Judas lives in us than we care to admit. But when we look at our lives and our relationship to the worship of God, we need to ask ourselves this. Do we we really resemble that reckless abandon that Mary showed to Jesus? Or are we chained to the common sense type of institutional rigidity that we have come to know and love? And don't get me wrong, it's okay to have a dose of both. The the institution of the church isn't bad. The institution of the church is the backbone that allows us to go out and be a bit vile ourselves as we seek to find new ways to connect the church to the world around us. But we do need to feed that sense of wonder and awe at what God can do both inside of our walls and outside of the walls through the act of worship. I believe that the church of the future is a place that's going to be a bit wild. That it takes places that are not only beautifully adorned in sanctuaries, but also that church is going to take place around tables, in burrito joints, in libraries, in marinas, in breweries, in a field across the street from this church in front of a mobile shower unit, anywhere where people gather. Because people are hungry for the spirit and the truth of God. They just don't always know it. I don't know that those coal miners knew what they were looking for in the fields outside of Bristol when they stumbled upon George Whitfield that first day. But when a few people brought them the word of God, the world began to change. So as you stew on this and ruminate on it, I want to leave you with these words of Jesus. Words that he said to his disciples turned apostles before his ascension into heaven. This is Acts 1, verse 8. He said, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. In these words from Matthew chapter 28. As all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so how will you bring a spirit of worship into the spaces that you naturally inhabit, the spaces where the people are. How will you participate in the call of Jesus and the legacy of our faith to be church out there in the wild? How will you submit yourself to being a bit more vile, to go out into the ashes of this world and help to paint a beautiful, new future. God, we thank you for all the ways that you have brought your truth and your word to us over the ages. We thank you for this church, this beautiful place that we have to come and to worship you, God. But we invite you to ignite a fire in our soul that would not see this church as a sole place of worship, but to see it as a place where we're sent out to worship this world, your word in this world. To worship you in spirit and in truth where those who desperately need to know that you are for them, that you love them, and that you are calling them home. Help us to go, to seek out, to find those spaces and those places in those people. To offer your love in the most unconventional, maybe unorthodox ways. God, we love you and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Mm-hmm. Amen.